Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Marshall Poe, your host. Each week, we pick a new history book that we find particularly interesting, and we interview the author of that book. This week, I'm pleased to say we have David Laskin on the show, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Long Way Home, An American Journey from Ellis Island to the Great War. You may not know it, but many of the American soldiers who are fighting in Afghanistan and Iraq are not actually American citizens. This, again, is something that Americans generally don't know. But the United States has a long tradition of offering people the opportunity to gain citizenship through serving in the armed forces. I believe this began in World War I, which is the subject of David's book. He traces the histories and biographies of 12 immigrants from Europe to the United States circa 1900 and into the Great War and shows Interestingly, how after leaving their ethnically segregated communities, they became, in the military, Americans, or at least more American, whatever that means, and gained their citizenship. They fought bravely for the United States, even though they had not been born here, which I think speaks very well of the opportunity that is offered people in the United States. I really enjoy talking to David today, and I'm sure that you'll enjoy the interview. Here it is. Hi, David. Hi, Marshall. How are you today? I'm fine, thanks. You, know, you are in Seattle, Washington, is that correct? I am. I am right now. I lived in Seattle for a while, and uh, they said that it rained all the time, but it didn't rain all the time when I lived there. No, it doesn't rain all the time, although it is raining now. It is, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. You know, as you probably remember, we have beautiful summers. This is our secret, which I'm now letting out to the world at large. Um, uh, the, the joke in Seattle is starting July 5th, the rain stops. It always rains on July 4th, which is pretty much true. Mm-hmm. And then we have two gorgeous months. But no, I remember that, yeah, I, re- I remember that very well when I lived there, yeah. actually. We can talk about that in a little while. I should tell our listeners that we have David Laskin on the show, and... Um, We'll be talking about his terrific new book, The Long Way Home, An American Journey from Ellis Island to the Great War. As I was telling David in the pre-interview, he wrote a book called The Children's Blizzard, which is much beloved in my family. It is one of my uh, wife's favorite books. My wife loves disaster books, and uh, this is right at the top of her list. Um, I can tell you a funny story about it, but maybe I'll do that later. Uh, she uh, quite literally couldn't put it down once, and it kind of got us in trouble. The, <laughs> but, um, yeah, this time we're going to be talking about The Long Way Home, which, uh, you know, as people who listen to this show know, I read all these books, and this is an absolutely ter- terrific book, and it tells the terrific story of um, the journey of uh, a bunch of guys uh, from Europe, uh, circa 1900, uh, to the United States via Ellis Island and then uh, into um, the maelstrom of the First World War and uh, how they uh, weathered that transition um, and what it, what it meant for them to become Americans in that way. So I, I highly recommend that you go out and, and buy the book. It's, it's really a page-turner, and David's a, a brilliant writer and historian. But, David, why don't we begin the interview by having you Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, I grew up on Long Island. I'm a child of the 50s, kind of the Leave it to Beaver era. 
which uh, we now commemorate, but seemed pretty ordinary to me at the time. And, you know, I think my interest in history really grew out of my interest in literature. And I was very, very lucky. I went to Harvard College as a young man and majored in history and literature and um, didn't even really know that that was a possible major. It wasn't really a double major. It was kind of one major. And we sort of thought about it. I mean, the joke was um, Middlemarch by George Eliot is kind of, kind of the perfect history and lit book. And you can uh, kind of get both at the same time. And it was kind of like, well, we look at, we read history as a novel and we read novels as if they're history. That was kind of the, you know, the buzzword for history and literature. And I think it really kind of that outlook stuck with me and um, really informed my way that I look at the world, the way I write, the way I read. And um, I went on to get a graduate degree at Oxford University. So I have a pretty fancy-dancy education. (laughs) And that was in English literature. So basically, I read poetry for two years. So I'm pretty well read, I have to say. And, um, you know, I, I think I'm one of the few people who actually has used every single thing I ever learned in college and grad school. Um, All of those art history courses, all of the geology courses, they all came in handy. And certainly for the long way home, um, you know, World War One, geez, I I think probably um, there's more great poetry that came out of that war in England. I, I wouldn't say so much in the U.S., but a little bit in the U.S., but it's certainly in England, great poetry that came out of that war. And I think great... You know, great literature, too. I think it was a war that really um, shaped the way um, modernism happened. So here we go again with the history and lit. I think it was the lit side that got me going on World War I. Um, but obviously, as you pointed out, The Long Way Home is a work of history. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't, you, of course, wouldn't know this. I taught in history and literature for a long time at Harvard. So uh, wow. I, know, I know the program pretty well. Excellent. Uh, actually, you know, they had done something when I got there and taught in it that I, I'm not, I don't know if they taught it this way when you were there, but uh, every seminar was taught by somebody from X language department, English or French or Russian in my case, and then somebody from um, something like the history department. And I don't know if I really liked that because it sort of separated things in an interesting sort of way. One of us was the empiricist and the other was mm-hmm. the artist, and I, I don't know if yeah. that really sent the right signal. I'm probably way before your time, and so we, we didn't do it that way. But Yeah, I, I kind of imagine that you didn't because, you know, if you read uh, great 19th century history before history took the kind of uh, hard scientific turn, mm-hmm. um, uh, they thought a lot more about um, I guess I would just prosaically call it storytelling. Yeah. Uh, and, and they are, uh, you know, 19th century histories are often much more novel-esque and less heavily footnoted than yeah. modern histories. I mean, mo- modern histories, the, the, that, that genre still exists. And uh, obviously you've written a wonderful contribution to it. And, 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 and actually I would even say that it is flourishing at this moment. I, I, yeah, get, I, I get a lot of books by writers who write in... Uh, uh, nonfiction, they, and they write uh, historical books, and some of them are just yeah. absolutely, absolutely terrific. And you know, they're the first ones that people read when they go to Barnes and Nobles. They're not going to read absolutely. my my monograph on 16th century <laughs> Russia. Um, so, so I, I congratulate you on that. I really do talk to a lot of people that are interested in writing and reading this kind of thing, and mm-hmm. and, I, and I applaud anyone who uh, can make a living doing it. Uh, how, how did you? Let me ask this: How did you come to write this book? 
Okay, well, this was, um, I would describe it as one of those light bulb moments. Um, I My previous book, as you mentioned, was The Children's Blizzard, and so that book um, was about a disaster storm, which was, you know, a killer blizzard that hit the Midwest in 1888. But it was also about immigrants, um, and that was something that I didn't anticipate. I knew I was fascinated by that storm. I've written about weather before, and that was kind of what lodged in my mind. But and, and I knew I was going to describe the storm through its impact on a bunch of people. So the challenge was finding those people. And um, so I cast my net. I put classified ads in every newspaper in Nebraska and South Dakota, the major states that were hit by the storm, got back fantastic answers from all sorts of people, and kind of went from there. And as I went, I discovered that most of the people who were living in that region at that time were immigrants. They were Many of them were from Scandinavia. There were a lot of Germans. There were also quite a number of Germans from Russia, um, most of whom were Mennonite. So those were the people that I wrote about and um, kind of fell in love with them. I fell in love with the whole immigrant story and um, just the the amazing struggles and hardship and bravery of these people setting out into the unknown, settling in an environment that was extremely harsh and very unlike ones that they had been used to. Um, so that's the children's blizzard. I was so, going to say, if I could just interrupt for a second. Uh, you know, we live among those people here in Iowa and, yep. uh, and, and in Kansas as well, where I grew up. I mean, if you go to the local cemetery, um, yeah. many of the grave markers are in check. Of course. Right? I'm glad you mentioned the check because I was just about to say I, I did have a file for the Children's Blizzard called Check Stories, yeah. and somehow they didn't make it into the book. And yeah. wouldn't you know it, in Lincoln, Nebraska, this woman with a tall kind of fur hat comes into the stocks into the reading and raises her hand and says, you didn't put any Check Stories in it. That's the second largest group in, in Nebraska. And, you know, and, yeah. and I love Ted Kuzer, and he writes about the Bohemian Alps yeah. and, and, you know, all his Czech neighbors. And I thought, oh, geez, yeah. that was a real oversight. So uh, my apologies to That's any right. Czech Americans out there. And I have to say, no Czech Stories in my current book either, although I do have a Slovak story, a major Slovak story. Mm -hmm. That may not be good enough, but Anyway, I'm digressing a bit. No, that's so, fine. I made you digress. Pardon me. Yeah, yeah. okay. And, I, and actually, I like to digress. But so the genesis of the book, so immigrants kind of dancing around in my imagination, very important theme, inspiring stories. I myself am the grandson of Russian Jewish immigrants from the Pale of Settlement. So kind of grew up with that whole immigrant experience in the background. Okay, so that's one side. The other side is World War One. Now I talked a little bit about how that is such a literary war. One of my all-time favorite books, *The Great War in Modern Memory* by Paul Fussell. If you haven't read it, go ahead. I had a, I had a chance. I'm sorry to interrupt again, but I had a chance yep. actually to interview Paul Fussell once. Oh was, wow! Okay. Yeah, no, it was. No. He was quite old at the time, and it was. Yeah. Uh, it was in connection with uh, the book that he wrote on World War II. Uh -huh, um, right. Th this right. was really quite a long time ago. I believe has he passed now? I don't think so. I, cause actually, yeah, I, yeah, yeah, I don't know I either. I'm sorry copy, I sent him a, a galley for blurb, and I got a scrawled note back, and I was so scrawled that it took me yeah. some some detective efforts to discover that it was actually his signature. So I think he's still alive. Um, he did not give me a blurb. Yeah, anyway, I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's worth plugging his books. If if anybody who is listening hasn't read them, they are all. 
Fantastic, and they're varied. The Great War in Modern Memory is really kind of an academic book, but he, he writes other books. Uh, he wrote a book yeah. called uh, Class. I don't know if you've read it, David, but it is. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that one. Uh, it is a truly fantastic book about mm-hmm. American culture and yeah. class in the American context. And it, the book is a scream. It's it's yeah. just very yeah. funny. And then he wrote this terrific book about uh, about World War Two. Um, kind of pitched against the Studs Terkel Good War tradition. Mm-hmm. I forget exactly what it's called. Do you remember? Yeah, I it's, don't. No. It's called. Um, Easy to find. Yeah, I don't remember either. But I'm it's a it's a anymore. it's a really terrific work because Paul Fussell was in the Second World War. Right. At, right. Yes. I that. And, uh, so he has a very <clears> Great War and Modern Memory, fantastic book, and has always you know that kind of um, cemented my interest in World War One. And so I was sitting at a Thai restaurant with my wife in Seattle one spring night, and I it was that was the light bulb, and I thought immigrants, World War One, I. I could do both, I could combine them. I knew this was a period of unprecedented and and unrivaled immigration in this country, so I knew. I didn't know how many immigrants um, were in the army in 1917 and 1918, but I knew there were a lot. And um, I knew that America's involvement in the Great War has been understudied and I think underwritten about. And I thought, wow, what a fantastic angle on it. So that was how it got going. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, so how did you assemble? Now, I should tell people who haven't read the book that the uh, story is structured around the tales of, of 12 individuals. How did you find them? Yeah, good question. So um, I, I did have the Children's Blizzard as a template, um, and as I mentioned, I advertised in there. So I kind of went back through some of the same means. Um, I put a notice in the Norwegian American Historical Association bulletin, and saying, I'm writing this book about immigrants in the Great War, and um, if anybody has stories. And that's how I found Andrew Christofferson, my Norwegian-American. I put an ad in the um, Italian America, which is the publication of the Sons of Italy, and that's how I found Epifanio Affetato. Um, Michael Valente, another Italian, I knew I wanted to have him in the book because he was the only Italian-American to win the Medal of Honor in World War One, and I tracked down his family. That took some doing, but it was not all that hard. Um, Tommaso Ottaviano, one of my other Italians, uh, his great niece's husband was somebody I wrote an article about. Um, and it, we got to be friends and got to chatting, and he told me, hey, my wife has this incredible World War I story in her own family. So I'm not going to tell you every single one, but mm-hmm. it kind of went from there. I mean, it was just, a ca- again, I kind of cast nets in many directions, did a lot of advertising, Jewish war veterans, mm-hmm. ran a, a notice by me, met many Polish magazines, things, you know, with the Internet, God bless the Internet. I mean, things just have a way of kind of, you know, going out there, seeping out there, and great stuff came back. So I had way more stories than I could possibly have put in the book, and some were very fragmentary, some were very detailed and complete, and it was just a question of kind of cobbling them together into a narrative, and it really was pretty late in the day that I suddenly realized Eureka! I've got twelve. The Dirty Dozen. So it was um, that was that was kind of a cool moment. And then when I um, when I realized that, it just and I thought, okay, now I can stop. <laughs> you know, I I can stop um, looking for others. And then it, then the real challenge became kind of putting all the stories together. But um, that that's 
maybe a different area. But anyway, that's so. So you know, kind of, um, th- this was definitely a challenge to to come up with these. And there were many sleepless nights when I thought, oh, you know, I need another poll. I need another poll. <laughs> but um, they all came through in the end, so it, it worked out really well. And I guess one other thing to um, point out is, again, by luck, the breakdown, the ethnic breakdown in my book very closely mirrors the demographics of the day. So Italians were the largest immigrant group at the turn of the last century. I have four Italians. Jews were the second largest. I have three Jews. Poles were the third largest. I have two Poles, and so on. So it was quite lucky Mm -hmm. that I ended up really mirroring the population, the immigrant population of that time. Mm -hmm. Well, let's take this opportunity then to set the scene. Uh, Maybe you could tell our listeners and me just a little bit about immigration to the United States from Europe at the end of the 19th century. Yep. Well, between um, the 1880s and the 1920s, there were 23 million immigrants who came to this country. So this is one of the largest population shifts in human history. Um, Most of them were from Southern and Eastern Europe. And, you know, obviously this is a nation of immigrants, but the previous large um, swells of immigration well, first of all, obviously the British Isles got us going. And then, um, you know, Irish and Germans were the big um, mid-19th century groups. But um, so after the Civil War, it shifted, and we start getting um, large influxes of Italians, Poles, Jews, etc., you know, all of Eastern and Southern Europeans who um, are, the, are the ones I wrote about in my book. And um, that sparked, as you can imagine, a lot of unease. Um, there was a sense of these people looked a little bit different, especially the, the ones from Southern Europe tended to be darker. Their cooking smelled different. They had, many of them were Catholic or Jewish, um, unlike the Protestant waves earlier. Of course, the Irish were also Catholic, um, and that was a problem for them. So this was, they were viewed with a lot of suspicion, especially once their numbers became so large. And one of the things that I write about in the book um, is the kind of the birth of well, really, I guess I'd call it scientific racism um, and, you know, the, the tangled up with the eugenics movement. So Madison Grant, who's a friend of Teddy Roosevelt, and a prominent New York lawyer, wrote this book called The Passing of the Great Race, which was published in, the, in I think, 1915. And he is basically has this theory that all of these Southern and Eastern European immigrants are from a inferior stock. Of course, the best stock is the Nordic stock the Aryans. And, you know, then he kind of goes down to, you know, the Mediterraneans and then down from there, the Alpine and, you know, the Jews, of course, are at the bottom of the barrel. And um, this book is a huge bestseller. And it's it basically, I mean, if it sounds a little bit like Hitler, well, yeah. it was. And Hitler actually loved this book. Mm-hmm. Um, so this was um, a kind of, you know, science well, I mean, dressed up as science, but basically a rant against immigrants. And they, they were ruining the country. But what I found so interesting about the book is that not only were, was he saying, you know, they're polluting our cities with their, um, you know, their, their um, bad morality, their thieving, their inferior, but they also 
won't make good soldiers. Mm-hmm. They're inferior stock. They're weak. They're, um, they don't have the moral fiber to lead, to be courageous in battle, and so on and so forth. So it's, and it's, of course, it's coming out during the Great War. So there's this sense of, you know, alarm that, that we have ruined our ability to fight, to field an army of warriors, because we've had this influx of, of immigrants, these inferior immigrants. And of course, this got my blood boiling, um, and I'm sure many <laughs> of your listeners will be, uh, who, who are, who are other groups they're from, will have their bloods boiling. And so uh, to me, it was like, you know, hell no. Um, and uh, I set out to prove him wrong mm-hmm. in part. I mean, that was not a my whole motivation for writing a book, but you know, I mean, I the, the the kind of the major examples that I had to throw in Madison Grant's face were my Slovak Marine Maki Kosak and the Fighting Jews Sam Draben. These were two career military guys. They were born to fight. They were both heroes. In fact, Kosak won two medals of honor in the Great War, mm-hmm. and they were from this inferior stock. Um, and you know. Darn it! They they acquitted themselves more than brilliantly, more than bravely, and you know they're maybe the most stellar examples. Um, and the fighting Jew, we can talk about him later. Great mm-hmm. stories about him, but um, you know, all of the immigrants that I wrote about um, were brave. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and they and they they really. I mean, one reviewer has said that this is a book about becoming American the hard way, and and I think that really captures it. They became Americans the hard way. But they fought just as bravely as anybody else, mm-hmm. and and just as miserably. I mean, I don't, I don't want to say it's all. It was. It's not all flag waving and back slapping. I mean, there was. You know, they grumbled. They hated the war. Their their families wondered why they were going off to fight for a country that was not their own. I'm not whitewashing it. This was not fun. This was not just. You know, heroism in the trenches. This was misery and suffering. And three of the guys I wrote about were killed in action. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think there was a sense that these uh, immigrant hordes who were feared and to some extent um, hated before the war were much more accepted and assimilated into the mainstream as a result of their service and their courage. Yeah, this is a topic that we've dealt with several times on the show in connection with um, women uh, mm-hmm. and African-Americans who fought in the First World War and right. Africans who actually fought in the uh, French forces during yep. World War One, and all of these groups, these three groups, were relatively disappointed. They had gone into the conflict thinking that they were going to be given all the rights, privileges, and duties of citizens of France yep. and the United States, pers- uh, respectively, and they, and they were not, yep. um, which, as I say, is a disappointment. I wanted to go back to one other thing you said, and, uh, and that is about the American elite's understanding of these people circa about 1900 to, say, 1915. Um, I know that in my own reading, I'm always surprised the degree to which something like eugenics was completely mainstream, that, it was, that, that people thought about it in the same way that we think about, uh, I don't know, evolution. Yeah, we, we just yeah. think evolution is true. We don't really, you know, we know people who think it isn't, but we yeah. think that they're kind of loony. And, right. uh, and I think that, you know, uh, Margaret Sanger and these people, mm-hmm. was, she was entirely mainstream at the time. The other thing is, is I think a lot of people, um, here I'm sort of speculating, a lot of people that, had, that remembered um, the Civil War remembered resistance to the draft in the North in the mm-hmm. Civil War, which was, right. uh, which was an immigrant phenomenon. It wasn't entirely an immigrant phenomenon, but it tended to be associated with immigrants. And right. they, were, they were worried about the lack of patriotism. Also, I mean, if you put it in the broader world historical context, America was 
the first nation of immigrants. Uh, I mean, yeah. I suppose you could include, I, I don't know, does Australia count? Or mm-hmm. I, I, right. I don't really know. I'm sure somebody can find an exception to that. But people had to kind of reorient the way in which they thought about nations. I mean, France was for yeah. Frenchmen, you know, despite right. the Basques, and Russia was for Russians, despite the Ukrainians. Yeah. What, was, what, was, uh, what was America for? It was yeah. for Americans, but what was an American? And they didn't really know. And, you know, if you take yeah. a nation like a nation, you have to put nation in quotes in the American context, mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. what exactly is it? I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I, mean, I think about my your grandfather or my grandfather who came over from Europe. I'm like, I, you know, I, for all I know, my grandmother and my or my great grandfather on my mother's side didn't speak English. He spoke German, right. and uh, yeah. I, I don't know what he thought about America. Yeah, <laughs> I have no yeah. idea. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. that was kind of a digression. But it's important to kind of you know put it in the, uh, you know, it does make your blood boil when you hear this stuff. But to these yeah. people, it was really. You know, it was really, it seemed sensible, oddly enough. Yeah. But, but, yeah. Well, you know, you, you raise an interesting question, Marshall, about, you know, the Civil War compared to World War One, in terms of resistance to the draft. I mean, there was a draft in the Civil War, and then there was, the, the, the next time there was a draft was World War One, and that was when um, immigration was at its high point. And, you know, I, there, I did find evidence of some resistance. Um, there's a, one of the guys I read about is an Irishman from Butte, and on draft registration day, there was widespread protest in Butte among mostly the Irish and the Finnish miners who did not want to register and did not want to serve. The Irish, of course, hated the English, and um, so were pro-German because they hated the English so much. But there was, you know, aside from that, it, there were fears that the Jews would not want to serve, and initially they were also pro-German because they hated Russia so much. And Russia, um, for the first three years of the war, was fighting with France and England. But then, of course, came the Bolshevik, Bolshevik Revolution. The Russians pulled out, and um, the Jews were thrilled that Russia now looked like it was going to become a democracy and um you know the the czarist regime which had which had um supported or at least turned a blind eye to the pogroms in which the Jews suffered so much was overthrown so the jews and, and Russia was out of the war, so the Jews now felt um you know they could go to could have fight for for america the, i guess so so there really didn't you know a, a widespread resistance did not materialize except among conscientious objectors like the Mennonites and the Hutterites. And there is um, a section in the book about that, where these were German-speaking Anabaptist people who believed in adult baptism, and there was a long, long history of protest among their groups and and oppression in Europe. And they came here mostly in the um, 1880s, seeking freedom, settled in the Midwest. The Hutterites added not only... um, um, pacifism, but also collective living. They were kind of Christian communists, if you will. Yeah. And um, they, when they were drafted, they their church elders decided it was okay for them to report for service, but not to serve. And um, the book describes what happened, the, the, really the torture that they suffered at the hands of the U.S. military um, when they went off to, to Camp Lewis, Fort Lewis, which, which it is now in Washington State, and they were actually court-martialed and, and imprisoned in Alcatraz. So that was, the, I would say, the major resistance to fighting in the Great War came from groups like that, you know, what we would now call the peace churches. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, uh, these, the, the Mennonites are all around us here in Iowa City, and uh, we, we visit mm-hmm. them sometimes. They're nice folks. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yes, they were conscientious objectors, and, and there were mm-hmm. a lot of them in the upper Midwest. In fact, there's a, if I recall correctly, there's a, um, there's a, I don't know if it's a famous poem, but there's a poem that I know about uh, 
by E.E. E. Cummins called I Sing of Olaf Glad and Big. Do you know this poem? No. Well, anyway, it's a poem. It's I sing of Olaf Gladdenbig, whose warmest heart recoiled at war, a conscientious objector. And then it goes on and on. And it's about oh. one of these fellows. Yeah. yeah. Olaf, I don't know what the heck Olaf was. I don't know what he was. Olaf is not a Mennonite name. By no, I <laughs> Yeah, but it's kind of, I think it's a kind of a famous poem, but about one of these immigrants who basically refuses to go. And in yeah. the Cummins poem, it's, you know, he's, he's, He's described as a very brave person who is mm-hmm. persecuted by the American military. But it was, it was by no means an obvious thing, I think, in World War yeah. I that people were going to respond to the draft because Americans yeah. had not really cottoned to it by, by any means. Not, not just you're immigrants, right. but just Americans in general yeah. didn't like yeah, the idea right. of the draft. I mean, I was just reading it. But even in World War II, which we think of as the good war, there was right. in Congress there was a lot of resistance to opening the draft. Yeah. So, Absolutely. You know, so yeah. we shouldn't pin this on immigrants. It was all Americans, and Americans exactly. are still kind of uncomfortable with the draft. We don't have it today. Yep. You know, it's a, yeah. in Europe everybody goes. It's just thought yeah, to be like right. that's what you do, but um, right. over here we don't do that. So why don't you begin by telling us about a few of these folks? I don't know where you want to start. Sure. Well, let's see. I think maybe I'll start with Tommaso Ottaviano. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned him before. I found him through a friend here in Seattle. And this is just um, uh, just one of the stories I love. Um, he was the oldest in his family. They came from a poor village in Italy called Cerlano, um, between Rome and Naples, a hill town. And, you know, most of these hill towns, are. when we visit Italy, we think, oh, how beautiful. But very, very poor back then. It really was uh, no paying jobs. I mean, they, they had small plots of land, but um, really very limited sources of income. His father died when he was a boy. He had four brothers and sisters. He was the oldest, so he sort of becomes the man of the family. And they emigrate to America. So he's the, you know, as a, as a, I think he's 12 when they emigrate. And he's the head of the family. Nice-looking kid, dark, handsome, thin, looks a little bit like um, Rudolph Valentino. <laughs> um, a little more rugged than that, but still in that mold. And um, they end up in Providence, Rhode Island, and he goes to work for a blanket factory. And that's where this is, you know, Providence then was, um, you know, heavily industrial. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's supporting his family and, um, you know, doing the immigrant thing. And his mother is kind of a tough, hardened woman, but, um, you know, really relies on Tommaso for income and support. Well, he is of draft age when the war breaks out. I mean, when, when the U.S. joins the war, I should say, in 1917, and he is drafted. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, he had two choices. First of all, he could have pressed for an exemption because he um, was the sole support of his widowed mother. Um, did not. Second of all, he had the choice, which was true for all Italian immigrants then, of serving in the Italian army. Um, Italy was fighting with the Allies in World War One, unlike the Second World War. So, um, uh, you know, Italy joined the war in 1915, and Italian Americans who were not citizens of the U.S. Um, <clears throat> many of them decided to go back to Italy and fight with Italy. Well, he decided no. He was going to fight with the U.S., and he was going to fight, despite the fact that his mother was hoping he wouldn't. He decided to do his duty for his adopted country. Um, so part of what fascinates me about him is that the family had his letters and postcards written to his mother. And I, for some strange reason, have decided to learn Italian. <laughs> in this book. It was just kind of for frivolous reasons that I love Italy. I love Italian culture. I love the Italian people and so on and so forth. So 
I thought, oh, wow, here's my chance to use my Italian after all these years of basically just using it to decipher menus and, and the labels on beautiful pictures. But I was a little worried because, um, you know, as you probably know, Italy back then, and it's still true, um, basically the people speak dialect. Uh, you know, standard Tuscan Italian is the language that you hear on the radio and the language of government and literature. But every village has its own dialect. And I thought for sure these letters were going to be in dialect, these war letters written back to his mama in um, Providence. But they were not. They were written in standard Italian, which I'm still puzzled by why he he chose um, standard Italian rather than the dialect, and I was able to read them. And so they gave me a, just a fantastically detailed sense of what it was like for this kid to be in the army. And the thing that was just so heartbreaking for me and so moving is that initially the letters are talking about how many other Italian guys there are in his unit and how they're palling around together and he's eating okay, she shouldn't worry, things are fine. There's a lot of mention of God. Thank God, you know, or God willing, I'll be home soon. The war will end soon. And then he gets, then comes uh, the Battle of the Argonne, which is the, basically the final push to end the war. It starts on September 26, 1918. And his unit is rotated in um, in October. And I was, I was at the National Archives that was able to reconstruct pretty much day by day what his unit, he was in the 78th Division, what his unit went through and so exactly where he was and what was going on and then compare it to the letters. And you just see him becoming more and more um, devastated mm -hmm. by the atrocities and by the slog. And actually, I went to France and visited the wood where um, he was fatally wounded and um, kind of reconstructed exactly what happened on the last day of his life. And, you know, he, he tries to maintain a kind of carefree, cheerful tone with his mother. But by the end, he's, he's just overwhelmed by the war. So I, I, that to me, that was one of the great stories that I was, it just came to me by chance. I had the letters, I had the unit histories, and I was really able to um, kind of put all this together. So that was one. Um, so let me choose one other, and I think I'll choose Sam Draven, the Fighting Jew, mm -hmm. uh, as my other kind of story to highlight. As I mentioned, he was a career soldier, and you know you just couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, it, it, it's Sam Draven. Um, really, it sounds like it was invented by some um, <laughs> screenwriter hack. And when I when I wrote that, I thought, gee, I wonder if they ever made a movie about yeah. Sam Draven. And so I go online, and it turns out there was playing you know, a kind of variety from 1940. Had you know, John Ford to direct movies about the, in a movie about the Fighting Jew, mm -hmm. and it actually never came to pass. But it was you know somebody else got the idea. Anyway, Sam Draven was this short, stocky. A friend of his described him as kind of like a vaudeville character, short, stocky. Um, Yiddish-accented Jew who comes from the Ukraine, 
um, emigrates. Uh, his family, his uncle is a tailor, so they decide, okay, he's going to become a tailor. And that lasted about a week. And then he, he decides, nah, 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 this is too peaceful for him. And the U.S. is inviting the Philippines. They're recruiting men right and left, trying to raise an army to go up to the Philippines. And Sam says, you know, do they give you a uniform? He said, yeah, you get a free uniform, Sam. And, and free burial, too. Okay, I'm in. So signs in. Um, and then the first battle, as a long description of it in the book, he... Um, uh, they're they're all kind of told to go forward against the Filipino rebels, and there's you know this huge explosion, and, and his unit is decimated, and the smoke clears, and they're all either dead or taking cover, and Sam is still you know trotting forward into the enemy territory, somehow survives this, and they say, well you know Sam, what the hell are you doing? He said, well you know the the sergeant says charge, but he doesn't say stop, so. He just kept going, and he was just kind of that type. Um, seemed, you know, like he was just kind of headlong and and crazy. But actually, another comrade of him, of his, wrote that he um, was was actually extremely careful and shrewd, um, and had a great instinct for strategy, and. Um, and knew exactly what he was doing in the battlefield. Well, he was in and out of the army. He was a soldier of fortune in Mexico. He fought. He supplied arms to Pancho Villa. <laughs> he, you know, he was like a bandido. He he saved, you know, Mexican revolutionaries from jails by, you know, raids and shootouts. And his he was a master at the machine gun, and you know, just an absolute character. And then um, when World War One, when we enter the war, 1917. He's in his 30s, so well past draft age, and is married, and actually has, he's just fathered a little daughter, but decides he can't sit this one out. Re-enlists as a private, is quickly promoted to top kick sergeant, and um, trains, uh, he's in El Paso, Texas, and trains a bunch of uh, raw recruits, and they're in the Battle of Blancmont, which is um, not a well-known battle, but really one of the most horrific slogs in the war, and Sam wins the Distinguished Service Cross, and anyway, so on and so forth, and, and I guess the final chapter, so he becomes a hero yet again in the war, comes back, and... Um, uh, you know, this is the Red Scare era. You know, World War One did not end with mm -hmm. with a great embrace of immigrants and and celebration of of their contribution to the war effort. Far from it. You know, the immigration quotas were enacted in 1921 and 24, um, and immigrants were looked upon as you know potential Bolsheviks and lumped together with the Huns that they had fought in the war and so on and so forth. And the Ku Klux Klan is resurging, and there the Klan is going to take over the American Legion post. That, that Sam belongs to in El Paso, Texas, and he launches this campaign against the Klan, and he gives this wonderful, rousing speech about how, you know, we didn't wear any masks in France except for gas masks, and nobody asked me if I was a Jew when I enlisted and fought in the trenches, and these people are trying to, you know, keep out foreigners and keep out Jews, and we need to fight them, and, and he won. He, they, this, his post voted unanimously to, you know, bar the Klan from taking it over. So, really colorful, crazy guy. Um, so those are two of the people who I think, you know, one, a heartbreaking story of just a sweet Italian kid who 
just was uh, went in there and was in the wrong place at the wrong time and was was doing his duty. And you know, I, I really felt that I was able to bring him to life through these letters and through interviews with the family and the other this kind of larger than life character, you know, out of Damon Runyon, who's actually a friend of Sam Traben's. I think Runyon was the one who dubbed him the fighting Jew. So that gives you a little sense of the color of the book. Yeah. Have you, uh, this is an aside, uh, and have you been to the, um, I think it's called the Jewish American Military Museum in Washington, D.C.? Uh, yeah. I, I used to ride my bike by it every day, and I never went yeah. in, and I really regret that now. <laughs> yeah, I was actually just speaking there um, last week. Oh, were you really? The first book tour. Yeah. <laughs> it's an interesting place. I mean, yeah, uh, they... Um, uh, they have a a lot actually about women, Jewish women in war, and, and really cool displays about nurses and and wax and waves and things. But yeah, it, it's an interesting place. Yeah, I mean, it's I mentioned great, it because you know, in, in so many towns, and especially on the East Coast, but that's not only true in the East Coast; it's also true in Colorado that there's a Italian American League or something. Right. You, you rarely ever see. I mean, when when I first saw the Jewish American Military Museum, I was like. What the heck is that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Italian-Americans are big on that kind of thing. But I was yeah. like, wow. And I never went in, and I really regret it. So um, yeah. if anybody from the Italian or the uh, Jewish-American Military Museum yeah. is uh, listening, um, I'm suggesting that everyone come visit you there. So uh, I wanted to talk to you about ethnic relations in the Army. And this is at a time in which people called each other ethnics. This was kind of the, 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 yeah. the, the colloquial term for people who uh, yeah. basically weren't Anglo-Saxons um, or black, mm-hmm. I think. Right, um, right. So, Maybe you could describe a little bit the way in which um, ethnic communities were arrayed in the United States uh, Mm -hmm. circa 1915. Sure. I would say that the short answer is extremely isolated. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and and then I'll elaborate a little bit. Um, You know, there's a section about the Polish Americans in the book, and I found a study that was done, I think, in 1915. Um, about the Polish communities, and they basically said they have no use for English, they have no contact with anybody outside their own communities, they um, go to Polish churches, they go to Polish stores, they read Polish newspapers, they work in, well, often in factories, steel mills or, or coal mines, or kind of the, the biggest um, occupations in which they're speaking Polish with their fellow workers, and they might as well be in Poland. Um, very similar in a lot of the Italian communities. Not only were they isolated, but they often kind of reconstituted their Italian villages in Brooklyn or in Providence or in Buffalo or what have you. So there was, you know, the Italian church had the same feast day that they had back in in Calabria or or Sicily, um, you know, exactly the same day, the same statues, the same customs, the same food, the same dialect. So these were communities that were, um, you know, obviously came here knowing nothing and, um, uh, you know, with very limited resources. And what do you do? You find relatives, you find, you find neighbors, and you band together. You find your fellow countrymen and reconstitute the life that you had in the old country um, in order to survive. And that's pretty much how it was. So these communities were very tight-knit, and there were often, I was actually just speaking in Chicago at the Polish Museum of America, which is associated with the Polish Roman Catholic Union of America, which was kind of a life insurance um, mm-hmm. 
company that got going to help out Polish immigrants, and, these, and they had a newspaper, the Narod Polski, and um, very tightly bound um, through these organizations, through you know either companies, you know, like of this sort, insurance companies, or through fraternal organizations, or churches, synagogues, what have you. So that was pretty much their toehold um, when war broke out. Um, not, you know, many of them did not speak English, and even down to the second generation, um, one of the guys in the book, actually Max Jeminski, is um, Kashub, which is a kind of a offshoot of Polish stock. I mean, they're, they're you know, there's Slavs and they're Catholics like Poles, and they, they lived in, in Pomerania, and they, were, they consider themselves distinct ethnically, mm-hmm. uh, but they're kind of lumped together with Poles. And this guy, Max Tominski, his parents were immigrants. He was not. He was born in Polonia, Wisconsin, um, but never learned any English because mm-hmm. there was just no need for it. So, you know, when the war broke out, and I'm, I keep saying broke out, when, the war, when we entered the war, um, you know, these they were drafted, or some of them enlisted, and then the army was settled with this huge social problem yeah, of what yeah. to do with these immigrants who did not speak English, who um, were so um, acculturated in other cultures, but certainly not in American culture. And um, to its credit, the army responded quickly and sensitively, and um, I was quite impressed by the measures that they took to acculturate these immigrant soldiers to teach them English, to um, bring in officers, you know, who are Italian or Polish or Jewish or Russian or what have you, to break them in. Now, obviously, there was a, um, you know, they had a vested interest in, in turning these immigrants into functioning soldiers who could understand orders and, you know, be identified with the U.S. And, of course, there was a heavy dose of civics um, when they were learning English. It was, you know, kind of entwined with the curriculum. But still, I think, you know, and, and the Army made sure that the Catholic, you know, Poles and, and Italians were able to uh, confess in their own languages so they really understood what was going on. And so, yeah, I think, the, you know, I, I mean, I do think the Army deserves a lot of credit for, um, reaching out to the immigrant communities. And, you know, I, I really think that it made a huge difference. I think they got out of their ghettos. I mean, one of the, one of the kind of small examples in the book is that I found a book called Joe's War by an Italian-American called Joe Ritzi. And um, he was referred to by his um, comrades as Wapi. And, of course, you know, that really pissed him off at the beginning of the war. Oh, crap. There I go. You know, and he was he would always get defects. Well, by the end of the war, it kind of became a term of endearment. I mean, oh, here's Wappy. You know, he's our buddy. So it kind of this, this, the ethnic slur, which was distancing and insulting and humiliating, gets turned around by service together, by, you know, by being in the trenches and by the comradeship and that loyalty that develops out of that into kind of a term of endearment. And I think that that really, that that's a small example of the kind of transformation that I think happened not only in the ethnic communities, but in the, um, in the mainstream community too, when they saw how, how well these guys served and how they were just, you know, just like everybody else. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I know that, I watch a lot of war movies, and I, I read a good amount of um, a good number of war novels as well. And 
Um, there's these kind of stock characters that I think largely come from World War One or World War Two, and you know that's the wisecracking Jewish guy, right? And then there's the lumbering Norwegian guy, yeah. And you know there's the mama's boy Italian guy, <laughs> and you, you, these characters are really like right, right out, right out of World War One. I. I mean, they, I, know, um, I know, but I mean, I think one thing that would shock us is, is in fact, the degree, the, the lack of what I think might be properly called a kind of speech code or political correctness, because the use of ethnic slurs at the time was uh, ubiquitous. I, I, oh yeah, it, it was, it was absolutely everywhere. It was a time before there was any sort of speech code like that um, impressed yeah. on people. Before we move on to talk about the, um, the army as a, a kind of mechanism for assimilation, which I want to talk about a little bit more, I, I do want to pause one mo- for one moment and, and note the incredible uh, historical short-sightedness of all of Americans even today regarding assimilation because you hear these same things. You hear these things about communities that will not assimilate. Right. From uh, Americans today, uh, you know, there yeah. are big Hispanic communities or Korean communities in Koreatown and um, in Los Angeles or wherever they happen to be, Hmong communities, and in, in, mm-hmm. they say, well, look, they're not assimilating. But right. it never lasts more than a, a generation or two, Absolutely. ever, anywhere. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I mean, I and, and compared to the degree of uh, ethnic homogeneity among these communities, within these communities, it, you know, circa 1900, I mean, it's nothing yeah. like it is t- today. I mean, it really, it was – you went to the Lower East Side. That was the largest yeah. concentrated population of Yiddish-speaking people in the world. Right, right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Was, yeah. Brooklyn was the – I don't know, the, the, the third or fourth largest – you know, it was the third or fourth largest city in the United States, right. and nobody spoke nobody spoke English. And yeah. uh, as far as I know, they speak English there now. I mean, they it's, do. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, so I, I don't know. It, it always amazes me that we think yeah. that somehow the children of these people that are not native speakers and do live in relatively segregated communities will not assimilate because they, they yep. will. I mean, that's what America does. Yeah, we, we, we will assimilate you. <laughs> We're like the yep. Borg. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we will assimilate you. So, yeah, I did want to talk a little bit about the army. Um, one of the things you discuss in the book uh, is um, why men and women, I suppose now, uh, fight as hard as they do. And one of the points you make with reference to Chris Hedges, I would make the same point with reference to uh, Eric Maria Remark, uh, is that they fight for their friends and their units, yep. that they don't yep. fight for their nations or anything like that. Yeah. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I think right. I mean, Chris. I, I'm glad you brought Chris Hedges and his quote about how you know people do not go into battle for God's country. Um, they go in for you know their 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 own asses or their their buddy next to them is absolutely true. And um, you know, I, I think to me, I have not. This was the first time that I really immersed myself in not only that kind of. You know, the literature of the war, but the the diaries and the memoirs and the you know the, the kind of the unit histories and the field orders, all the kind of the you know the, the sort of um, ephemeral papers that that are produced by people who are actually in it. And what you when you read that, you don't. I mean, what you get is the sense of dailiness and the sense of. Um, whether your feet are wet or dry, or whether how much you've had to eat, or you know whether your buddy is still alive, or whether you hate your captain or love your captain, or you know how many miles you have to march, and you know it's not really about ideology, or strategy, or um, you know enmity, or, or or patriotism. It's it's just about um, survival your own survival and the survival of the people you're fighting with. 
and kind of getting through. And I think that's, now I have not served in the military, so I can't speak to this from direct experience, but I certainly have read a lot and immersed myself in in this literature. And I would say that's an incredibly powerful um, bonding um, phenomenon. So I, I think when, so yeah, so I think when you, when you see what, what this daily life was like, and then, you know, I mean, it's a little hard to, to uncrust World War One from the cliches that have that have adhered. Well, I think this is true for for all history. I mean, I think, you know, you say World War One, and everybody thinks, you know, trenches, mud, rats, mm-hmm. bombing, gas, um, slaughter, machine guns, and those are cliches, but they're absolutely true. Mm-hmm. And when you kind of really hunker down with with remark in, in all quiet of the Western Front or or with Tommaso Ottaviano in his letters to his mother, this is what they lived with every day. And the only way that they were able to survive and not go crazy was um, through this sort of comradeship and through this bonding with with, with their buddies. Mm-hmm. And And if they were lucky, I mean, some of them, you know, really ended up with great officers who um, were were leaders who they really felt inspired by. But you know, it's not about Wilson or or the Kaiser or or Pershing. It's 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 really at that at that unit level. And you know, so I think for me it was it was especially poignant that these guys entered the war barely speaking English. You know, not not only having no um, real loyalty to the U.S., but many of them, for the Italians and the Jews in particular, had no loyalties to their countries of origin. They had no tradition of national loyalty. I mean, the Jews obviously had been persecuted in Europe, so they were loyal to their religion and their families. And pretty much the same was true for Italians. There was a, you know, Italian, Italy was only unified in the 1860s, and even to this day, Italians will be loyal to family, church, village, you know, there's a sort of company lay. I was going to say, at least unified. (laughs) Yeah, right. So, you know, so these are people who who did not come in with, with, well, they came in with God, but without country. And yet somehow they had this sense of, of belonging um, in the military. And, you know, the the thing that, that the word that comes up over and over again is pride. You know, their families, you know, one, two, three generations later, I mean, these are the people I interviewed um, to get these stories, were just so damn proud that their dad, grandpa, uncle, great uncle, served a country that was not his own, served bravely. And, you know, I think it really, it ended up really cementing the bonds of of these immigrant groups with the country. I should mention that I did interview two of the guys in the book. They were still alive at the time of my research. Tony Piero was 110. Wow. And Sam Goldberg was 106. Two living Great War veterans who I was lucky enough to sit down with and and chat with. So that, those those were unforgettable experiences. Well, yeah. One of the reasons I mentioned Remark and All Quiet in the Western Front is that uh, to me that is the ideal uh, history and literature. Oh yeah. To hark it again, because you know there's there's nothing specifically German about that book. Right. Uh, you, you really could take every German reference out of it and uh, substitute a French reference or an English reference or an American reference or a Russian reference. Right. Uh, it, it really is about the experience of those soldiers in a place like that and right. how they uh, 
grow to love one another and grieve for one another when they are um, one by one killed. Yep. Uh, I, I remember very distinctly, I was just talking to my wife about this last night, how I basically had never read a book before I was about 17 and how I found mm-hmm. All Quiet in the Western Front and I, and I read it to cover to cover and I just thought how really quite, yeah. quite an amazing book. I, I, before we close the interview, I do want to say uh, something about the the really uh, significant relevance of a book like this today, uh, I, I don't know why it is the case, but Americans tend to forget that we are involved in two hot wars right now. Yeah. Uh, and um, many of the people serving are not American citizens. That's correct. Yeah. Um, maybe we could talk a little bit about that. Uh, you know more about it than I do, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, today, you know, in, in World War One, um, 18% of the Army was foreign-born. Today, it's 5%. Um, now, different groups in World War One. obviously the groups I'm talking about, you know, Jews, Poles, and Italians, by and large today, it's the largest immigrant groups are Filipinos and Mexicans. Um, different names, different, slightly different numbers, but very much the same issues. Um, and so, you know, uh, it, it, it kind of... I have to say that it, it riles me a little bit when people talk about how well, you know, the immigrants back then, you know, in the turn of last century, you know, they did their duty right. and they're not doing their duty now. Well, yes, they're doing their duty yeah. now. I mean, it's, we have a volunteer army. Yep. But, and I, and I think a lot of the reasons that people enlist are economic. But, um, you know, the, the research that I've done into the immigrants in the army now, exactly the same issues come up. And exactly the same loyalties to their unit, loyalties to their adopted country, you know, bravery or, you know, their people, just as the Jews and Italians and so on were, were people in World War One. And so I think really these things have not changed. Interestingly, um, another thing that hasn't changed is the... Um, the amendments to the immigration law, which permit soldiers in active duty to become citizens instantly, that, that law was amended in May of 1918 to reflect the large numbers of immigrants in the Army back then. So they waived the five-year residency requirement and the necessity to have two people on vouch for your character. Immigrants on active duty were instantly citizens if they wanted to be, and the same is true today. So the, the government has recognized um, this service, and um, obviously many, many immigrants are taking advantage of it. So, yeah, I mean, to me, um, this is the great thing about studying history. You you see the events of the past mirrored in the present, and I think a lot of um, prejudices and and kind of preconceptions can are are easily overturned when you when you go back and, and see how similar things were in many ways back 100 years ago. Yeah, I mean I think that's exactly right. Again, we have this kind of historical myo- myopia that that uh, short-sightedness we, you know, well, you know, immigrants today, they're not like immigrants were. Well, you right. know that they are. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry yeah. about that. Yeah, right. your your great-grandfather was like that. <laughs> right. Exactly. And uh, that guy right there. I also think, you know, I mean I, this will sound ridiculously patriotic and almost jingoistic, but I think it speaks remarkably well of the United States in general. Oh, the, the people would yeah. want to come here and and fight for us. I mean, they're not, you know, they weren't born here. They don't, uh, they, yeah. you know, they aren't among us. They aren't us, and they want to become yeah. with us. They want to join us, and they will fight to do so. And I just think it, it speaks remarkably well of, of of our collective enterprise. Sorry to sound so patriotic. No, I, I agree. <laughs> I mean, and, and I've come out with the same kind of patriotic line, and, and I myself am a heart-bitten, middle-aged, cynical, <laughs> you know, pointy-headed intellectual in some ways. But I do think that 
Um, you know, this this country has been great to my immigrant family, and I think it's. I, I do think that one of the remarkable things about this country is how readily it has welcomed and absorbed and assimilated, if you will, all of these immigrant groups, yeah, and it's, it's still going on I mean, today. Really and so, yeah. I think immigrants have made us great, but I think we are great to our immigrant populations yeah. I, I, by and large. Obviously, there's frictions and there's these issues, but I do think that, um, you know, this is a country where people like my grandparents could be free and prosper for the first time. And that's certainly true for all the guys I read about in the book. So, yeah, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with waving the flag. It is, it is, no, I mean, it really is remarkable. I and mean, I think in the broader historical perspective, America is an incredibly successful experiment in um, assimilation and nation building. It, there yeah. really, there's no case like it in world history. I'm sure that one of my listeners will write me and tell me that there is, uh, but I, I can't <laughs> think of one. And while we're on the subject of your grandfather, your great grandfather, is a story I'm sure I've told it on the show before. But a friend of mine, he was uh, moving. This is many years ago, uh, not many years mm-hmm. ago, but a number of years ago. He was moving to Lower Manhattan, and uh, uh, he happens to be of um, Jewish descent. And he told his, mm-hmm. I think he told his grandfather that he was moved to Lower Manhattan. And his grandfather said, I spent my entire life trying right. to get out of that place. Yeah. And you're yeah. moving back. <laughs> I, know, I know. It's like the name Max. You know, everybody, you know, back in those days, his name Max. And they were like, oh, geez, why would you ever call anybody Max now? Like every other kid is in a playground is named Max. So I don't know. <laughs> things come back. Yeah, it's funny. So anyway, uh, I, we've taken up really a lot of your time, and I appreciate yeah. it. It's been fascinating talking about the book, and I want to thank you for writing it. Let me ask you our traditional final question on New Books in History, and that is, what is your next project? What are you working on now? Well, yeah, I'm working on a book that actually has, in many ways, grown out of this book, The Long Way Home. And what I'm working on now is a family history about the three branches of my mother's family. And I'll just talk about it briefly. Um, my one branch came to this country as immigrants, as you know, talked about, and um, one of my great uncles served in the Great War. He was in the big red one, first division. And um, he and his brothers founded a business that was quite successful, and their sister founded the Maiden Form Bra Company. Really? So, yeah. Wow. So, yeah, interesting group. This was, these are all my grandfather and his siblings founded these two very successful companies. Well, cousins of theirs um, left the old country and went to Israel as pioneers in the 1920s and started a kibbutz and were there at the founding of this, of that country and went through its history of you know, the British mandate and then the independence and so on and so forth. Uh-huh. And cousins of theirs remained in the old country, which was then became Belarus and were killed in the Holocaust. Uh-huh. So one family, kind of one group of cousins, um, ended up really living through and being part of the three great movements of 20th century Jewish history, mm-hmm. the immigration to the U.S., the founding of Israel, and the Holocaust. And it was, again, a little bit of a light bulb moment. I, I didn't know about the Holocaust side of the family, but I've learned about that since. So, again, I'm putting these three branches together and just describing what what happened to them and how they got swept up into this these cataclysms and, and to some extent, successes. So that's, that's what I'm bringing in now. Yeah, that's... That's, um, I'm reminded of another story that I'm sure I've told on this show. A professor of mine who taught Russian literature, um, we read Tolstoy, I think, and he handed out some evaluations after the class and um, asked us what we thought about it. And one of my more clever colleagues 
said he liked the class, but with material like that, you really can't lose. And I, I, kind, of, I kind of feel the same way about uh, those three stories. That is, just, yeah. that is just absolutely fantastic material for a book. And I'm sure that in your extraordinarily able hands that you will come up with something that, uh, that everyone will want to read. And I hope that you yeah. come back on the show when you get it I done. I would love to. That's terrific. Thank you. Thank well, you uh, David, we've been talking to David Laskin about The Long Way Home, an American journey from Ellis Island um, to the Great War. David, I want to thank you again for being on the show. Absolutely. My pleasure. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. You've been listening to an interview with David Laskin about his new book, The Long Way Home, An American Journey from Ellis Island to the Great War. I'm Marshall Poe, the host of New Books in History. I hope that you have a great week.